0: What we try to do is get them to understand that it's not just like your your PI and you know the five other PIs and and their sort of interpretation of the research you're doing. It's also like my interpretation as a non you know researcher who's who's into science and your mom's and like you know a bunch of people who live in Wisconsin who are you know farmers or who work in a factory or who are teachers or who you know are religious people. And that is very hard because it requires. I think the process by which most of our scientists kind of get to that space of becoming really good storytellers requires like a bit of personal growth and sort of pain on their end.
1: Greetings, Future Fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. For me, that means usually something about the philosophy of science, about the way that we organize knowledge, the way that we put facts together, although that's a very historical way of seeing this, the way that we come to determine what it is that we believe is true. It's always been an interesting question for me, I think, but lately, especially working at the Santa Fe Institute, I've been thinking a lot about how we come to understanding and how the social dimensions of this process while themselves, yes, an excellent subject of quantitative study and of literary criticism, are also something else. They are human stories. And as this week's guest, Nadia Ortelt, says later in this episode, these stories of the scientific process are crucial in ways that we don't even yet fully understand. There's something that Future generations are for sure going to regard as frustratingly absent from the record of science we've left up to this point. Vital gaps in our understanding of the evolution of human knowledge. So it's really cool to talk to Nadia because she has this company, Massive Science, that teaches scientists how to be better communicators so that everyone has access to science writing that is not only as rigorous as it needs to be to honor the research, but as candid as it needs to be to honor the scientists involved. Not to mention as compelling as it needs to be to honor not only the reader, but our understanding of neuroscience and narrative and what it is that makes a good story. What it takes to change a mind in however subtle of a way so up ahead is Nadia Ortelt but first I want to thank everyone who has been reviewing this show on iTunes I kind of slept on requesting this for several dozen episodes and then I stopped by the other day and realized that there are now something like over 115 reviews of the show that's more reviews than episodes that's awesome I really appreciate it it helps get this program, these conversation into the ears and minds of everyone who could appreciate, who could benefit from them. And that is the point. So thanks. Also, thanks to everybody who has been supporting me at Patreon. It's it's coming along fairly well lately. Uh, Wim Forceville, Dylan Manning, Glistening Deepwater. Thank you all so much for recently joining that squad. And... I want to give a special shout out to Mike Schwab and Know Your Meme, Future Fossils Podcast's new featured sponsor. It's an interesting site, uh, Know Your Meme, if you haven't checked it out. They're fascinated by the findings we discover while researching memes. The medium provides, as they say, a unique vector for modern communication, one that frequently has obscure Rorschach-adjacent properties. Know Your Meme is galloping into a special year for their team, their visitors, and their community. And they'd like to extend an invitation for you to join that community of memeologists, They have an extensive base of articles on the site already for you to read and comment on. You can log in, visit the forums, write articles of your own, edit any of thousands of living documents. Kind of reminds me of Shuang Su commenting on Lao Tzu and how really hypertext is the original form of written human communication. Uh, We're just getting better at it. So knowyourmeme.com. Go check them out. All right. Ooh, commercial. Thank you. One last thing before we begin. I want to apologize to everyone for putting this show out less frequently than I would like. I know maybe this is unnecessary because there are too many good podcasts to listen to at any given time, and it seems always a backlog on the shows I want to hear. But for those of you who are voracious enough to have been consuming every new episode of Future Fossils the week it came out, I want to apologize to you (laughs) for slowing down a little bit as I prepare to become a father in just a couple weeks and adjust to a lot of new initiatives and new responsibilities in my professional life. I'm working on some very exciting things I'll get to share with you soon. So hang tight and I'm going to shoot for quality over quantity over the next few months. All right. Thank you so much and enjoy. This is Nadia Ortelt of Massive Science. Nadia Ortelt, thank you so much for joining me on Future Fossils.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Michael. I'm really excited to to delve in with you to something.
1: Yeah, so um, a bit of backstory, right, is that Uh, our mutual friend Robert Gahorsam introduced us when he was visiting Santa Fe Institute. And he told me that as a newly hired communications science person, communicating science, that uh, I should be aware of your work at Massive Science because you're doing all sorts of extraordinary stuff helping to shape the future of science storytelling or at least promote good storytelling in science. Um, and then we met and we had a, a great conversation and here we are, and all of this is getting cut out because it's just crap, but I'm really, <laughs> but I'm super glad, I'm, I'm super grateful to, to Robert for introducing us because I do find your work and and the work of you and your colleagues very interesting. And I'd love to hear how you got into the field of science communication and why you decided that a project like Massive Science was so important?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And it has the story of how I got here is an interesting one and kind of a meandering one. um, As I think a lot of, a lot of interesting stories are like that. They're not, they're really nonlinear. So I, I, I always wanted to go to art school, and then uh, through a variety of or for a variety of reasons, I was uh, kind of shoved into uh, science and engineering school. And so I studied neuroscience as an undergraduate, and I did a lot of research from kind of day one in Jim DiCarlo's lab, who's still at um, MIT. He does a lot of high-level uh, vision research, and I, you know, having never done research science before, having never been in a lab, I completely bowled over by this method of investigation that I was somehow like just dumped into as a a really young person um, and kind of fell in love with it, but was also like deeply frightened of it and just in total awe, struck by it really. The idea that somehow um, like all of our knowledge production comes out of this like really kind of messy process where just a bunch of people are sitting in a room and debating, you know, a, a piece of knowledge that had been. You know put out in a, in a scientific research paper, and then everybody tore it apart, put it back together again, formed their own hypotheses, and that sort of process had been going on ad infinitum since you know i mean arguably for thousands of years, but really since the Renaissance in a lot of ways so um I was i think that was a kind of like inception, the seed of like why I just became really fascinated with um kind of the translation of science and how tra- and how science is a part of culture and how it kind of like bleeds out into um, all sorts of different areas um, now in a contemporary uh, space. And so after that, I, um, I had always sort of moved back and forth between science uh, research, scientific research, and then also documentary film production. So I, I like picked up a camera, I bought a book, how to make a, a documentary film in like 2005 or something with uh, another undergrad who's also um, she was a neuroscientist and then now studies the ethics of DIY brain interfaces. Her name's Anna Wexler. She's at UPenn. She's really, she's awesome. So her and I were like, Oh, let's make, let's become filmmakers. We don't know how to do this. And so we did it. It took us like 13 years to make a feature length film. And that was a, that was a, that was a thing that was happening sort of behind the scenes. As I was always doing all sorts of other things, uh, but that kind of set the stage for like the storytelling piece of my life. And then, uh, I sort of interwove that in with, with research for a while, decided that doing a PhD was really not the direction that I wanted to go in. I think a lot of a lot of people who don't decide who decide to not do a PhD, that's that's a that's a very specific decision to make because I think the process of science, although it's beautiful theoretically in practice it's it's really arduous and it takes a very specific type of person to like kind of go in day after day and do the same thing over and over again but one of the things that always really struck me was like leaving the scientific space or the science space the engineering space was that it w- it was kind of this unknown like black box for most people who weren't exposed to it and um there was a moment actually where I like was exposed like the, the Pandora's box was opened other than sort of jumping into a lab but it was when uh, the PI that I was working with at the time, David Cox, who's now the um, the director at the MIT IBM AI AI Watson Institute uh, or lab rather. Um, but he, uh, I remember him just like opening casually a door in the lab, and there was like a macaque in there. Which is, I don't know if you've ever have you ever seen a macaque
1: Michael? in person? Not, I mean at zoos, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, a macaque in person when it's like four feet away from you, um, you know. A fixed in a box a clear box it has like a head post and it's like staring at a screen it's doing like a experiment has its hands on like a little (laughs) cursor uh it's a lot to take in when you just (laughs) suddenly are exposed to it and you're 18 and you have no idea what's going on in the world and like suddenly you're like oh wow this is science is like this real there's a physical there's an animal here we're like pulling data out of its brain we're observing it like what the hell's going on so i think at that moment, understanding that, understanding how complicated it was and how messy it was, and just how awesome the whole thing was, I've I've always been trying to figure out like how do you how do you take that and how do you bring it to people who are not going to devote their lives to scientific research but who still have this real curiosity and sort of interest in how that process happens, and um, and so the storytelling, making documentary films, becoming a producer over the past ten years, um, sort of putting aside lab research has all led to through a series of sort of half steps and steps to Massive, which is a kind of attempt to to create a, a Wikipedia almost of scientific knowledge, but that is authored all by uh, scientists and experts in sort of science and engineering and mathematics and, and uh, medical fields. The idea that somehow we could take the sort of canon of published scientific literature and turn it into something that's searchable and Trustworthy and actually full of a kind of subjective, emotive tone that you actually find in scientific research. That's what I wanted to make, and so that's kind of massive. Is like one small step in that direction, I think.
1: Mm. There's, you know, in that was that was a really long explanation. I'm sorry. Fine, you know, usually I'm the one who's going on and on uh, on this show and feeling weird about it. so like something that I want to point out about the story that you just told and like the part that I find so captivating as a social primate is that it was told in the first person and that it's it's like a report about your actual story. And yet uh, in the scientific literature, we have gone as a, you know, as a culture that produces this form of knowledge construction uh, we have gone way the hell out of our way to erase the subject from the scientific publication and like i remember a couple years ago reading an article in new scientist which i think it was new scientist it was it was written by the the research team that did this study and they were talking about how we did this and we thought this and i thought it was so bizarre to hear science in the first person even the sort of royal we You know, like, it's, I mean, there's a little bit of that in a lot of these, it seems like there's more now than there was, but at the same time, there's this, you know, the the whole tilt of things is to make claims about reality that are true no matter where you're standing, right? And so this, it feels like we went through a phase where the goal was to perform the sort of view from nowhere, right? And then now we're at a point where this, the subtleties, uh, the nuances of the the questions that we're asking uh, de- demand, in a large part because of the findings of neuroscience, demand that we know who is actually asking the question. Like, what model are we looking through here? And it's not just what model, but like what system is is using that model. It seems like there's a return to says who in the in the scientific conversation
0: yeah i mean if you think about like there there's a requirement now for context and for and as part of that context like um subject some kind of subjective reality like and it's interesting that you use the word performance of objectivity i think that's what you said but i think (laughs) there also i think there also needs to be a kind of um a performance of subjectivity to a certain extent i mean all subjectivity is a performance i think but scientists in particular yeah in order in order to understand what is what what question they're asking what question they're really asking I think especially for people who are not sort of steeped in the intricacies of some tiny subfield and the sort of like ten people who defined the like subcategorization of thought within that subfield. Because those researchers know that. Those PIs know like where everybody stands, but everybody else, especially in, in inter like um or I keep wanting to say intramural science, but like uh <laughs> uh you know, uh interdisciplinary science. They they need to know that context. And as you're saying, they need to understand what that who who is performing that subjective science.
1: Or like, you know, uh my graduate advisor, Sean Hargins, co-authored this book, Integral Ecology, Uniting Multiple mm-hmm. Perspectives on the Natural World. And in it, he makes this this case for Basically, an intersection of the different schools of ecology with the different levels of psychological development, and points out how nature looks completely different to a two year old, a five year old, a 10 year old, a 20 year old. Like that concept itself develops along with the subject. And so, you know, by the time you're like 60 and capable of this like remarkable tolerance of paradox and ambiguity and you're in like what harvard developmental psychologists call the construct aware phase of ego development where you realize that you are a story that you're telling then that sort of boundary the city wall between human civilization and nature disappears you know at least conceptually and so you know the idea that you need to know where someone is stationed psychologically before you can even evaluate their claims. Before you can even say like what what kind of thing they're talking about seems to be really critical, and that's something that I don't see being done in science um, practically at all.
0: I mean, a lot of people would I, I imagine like most scientists would not agree with a lot of what we're saying here. Um, I think the idea that that context matters at all is like an abomination, you know, to like, <laughs> a, 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 I mean, theoretically, maybe not for like a physicist, but I think in practice, most people disagree with, with that. And I, which I think is, I think is like, it's like self affirming in some way. It's like, yeah, of course, if you, if you feel that that is not relevant, then you can sort of continue to ask questions that disregard the kind of context and the kind of subjectivity that's necessary to ask more complicated and more ambiguous and sort of softer questions and that's like i mean that's an ongoing question that i have generally which is like how can you ask questions of complexity without like is the is the quest in science to ask questions in finer finer detail really going to to lead us to answers that actually like explain anything that is complex to us i think in the neuroscience has like constant has been struggling with that for you know since its inception as a kind of field uh, in quotes but um i think yeah, I mean, the same is true of ecology. Right? The same is true of uh, psychology. And I think of medicine to a certain extent too, although a lot of people would also argue that that's not true.
1: But yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't think it will. <laughs> well, you got the placebo and, effect. you know, that whole piece of it, I think, seems like there are these ways that it's it's sort of perniciously re-entering the conversation, whether we want it to or not.
0: Yeah, I mean so I just this is maybe an aside, but probably There's not. No aside um,
1: here.
0: Right right, exactly. Uh so this weekend I went to Alex and Allison Gray's chapel of the sacred bears in uh upstate New York. Or I guess it's upstate, I don't know technically where that is, on the Hudson somewhere. And I was you know, there are moments where, you know, as as a scientist I kind of was like balking, but there were also um <laughs> there were also like a lot of moments of you know, I think an awareness that the ways in which they're trying to investigate really complicated questions of group psychology and and, uh, spirituality and sort of environmental awareness are really the only way that like the only way that we can answer and ask those questions are from an entirely different perspective than the one in which like contemporary objective science affords us. And I think it's very interesting to watch, especially right at this moment, because I think the Greys have kind of tapped in, or they're here at a moment when sort of movements in sort of psychedelic science or medicine or drugs, uh, art and spirituality are kind of coalescing as a alternative mode of investigation of the world. And it's very interesting, because they're not presenting it as an alternative to sort of like scientific thought, they're actually presenting it as a integrated way of scientifically sort of looking at the world, which I thought was really fascinating so I was thinking about that a lot um, while I was there I don't know if that's kind of relevant to this conversation I know you have a lot of thoughts there
1: but sure. well, I mean I, you know I, I, I had Dennis McKenna on the show once upon a time and uh, that interview actually got brought up in my job interview at this place <laughs> they were like so we saw that you uh, you discussed the scientific method and interrogations thereof with Dennis McKenna but um, you know that piece of it, which is that under the altered epistemological framing, you know, under the altered selfhood and sort of available uh, world space, uh, the world space available to that self of these non-ordinary states of consciousness, the scientific method can continue to be practiced, sort of, um, like trial and error. And I mean, I guess, you know, it really depends on, to what degree you have ceased occupying like normal space-time coordinates. But like, that's just the thing. Like Richard Doyle in uh, Darwin's Pharmacy, I I bring this book up all the time and I keep it here at my desk at work because he talks about how, you know, a lot of the big questions in science are, is it this way or that way? Kind of dualistic binary questions. And operating from a space where we're not held to the conventional concepts of self and other, then the conventional ways of practicing science have to be radically reformulated.
0: So my question is, and I don't know if you, I, I, I feel like you might have an answer here, is like, how do you start asking questions then? Or like, is, is, is even a question the wrong framework for some sort of like, like, is there a, is there a kind of science that can happen? Or is that—is that whole framework like out? Like when you, when you have to do, when everything becomes a sort of subject, like, is that just the humanities? Like if we, is it, are we just telling stories then? Is there some middle ground? Like what does that look like? Because I think that's always been, or is it, or is it simply like there are many different ways of asking questions about the universe and we sort of, we'll have traditional science. And then we'll also have other different, other sort of ways of investigating the world. And we'll always just have to sort of exist within this maelstrom of, um, paradox paradoxical answers to those questions in those different spaces or is there is there like an actual new kind of science that has to emerge as we start asking more complicated questions mm-hmm. i mean i don't i don't have an answer to that but I, I are there people who are sort of trying to figure out what that kind of new framework could be
1: yeah well i mean you know uh, francisco varela who co-authored the theory of autopoiesis you know like the the sort of self-organizing cell that it's self-organizing process is a form of cognition he co-authored also this book called on becoming aware that looked at the way that we move from an individual perception to a sort of uh, intersubjective like you know an agreement that i had this experience and so did you and then you keep adding perspectives, you know, from first person, second person, third, and that really, like, the scientific method emerges at the third person, where you're, you know, you're. It's not merely a matter of cultural consensus, you know, that you're you're constantly seeking peer review. You're constantly seeking an an, an outside opinion that disagrees. So I don't know that like, I don't know that science can be performed as we understand it in a in a space where we lack the cognitive resources to hold the the position of a subject object kind of operation you know but I think
0: I feel like science fiction down. has the answer to this yeah
1: <laughs> you got an
0: example so i feel like i just there's i think it's a um it's a short story from cosmic comics if i don't i, I think i'm recalling that correctly where Human, there, there's no, there's no like individual subjective consciousness. There's a sort of like intercorrelated universe of, like beams of light and energy, and there's a sort of like under, which is what I was thinking about because this, you know, Alison Gray and has her like web of Indra uh, oh, and yes. the, yeah. So I was thinking about this this science fiction story, which is like a very beautiful frame of like what it would be like for the universe to ask different questions when there is no like subjective eye and but i mean it's a story right (laughs) and i think in some ways yeah cosmic comics is about the universe telling stories to itself or like somehow us telling ourselves stories about universes that don't exist or could exist or do exist in our memory so anyway it was very far uh, far afield from the original No, not really.
1: Like, let me, let me drop this in there and see where it stands for you. Cause this was sort of the, the linchpin of this talk I gave recently where I was thinking there's this chart that shows sort of like the complexity of a model that you're using to view a situation. And on the one end, it's like, you're not asking enough questions. You're, you've got great certainty. Your computational costs are low. And to me, I see this as like fundamentalist religion. You've got the one sacred text. It answers everything. And if something else comes up, you just throw it out. And then on the other end, you've got this thing where it's high comp- computational time, high energy requirements, and it, it never actually like ever settles in an answer. You know, you're just, you're just asking and asking and, a, and gathering more and more data. And that to me feels like the opposite. That's like Zen meditation. You know, like you don't ever settle into a narrative framing about who you are or how the world is. And it just remains open and it's constantly being modified. And then the sweet spot is in the middle. And it's like, you know, the the perspective that I'm distilling from my time here, you know, working with all of these complexity researchers is that that sweet spot is where it's like the channel into which evolution drives everything it's like the the good enough explanation and so like you know maybe what we're talking about here is sort of like skateboarding through a half pipe where you like sometimes you're on one end where you're just like drinking from the fire hose of reality data and then on the other end you're principally preoccupied with the narrative architecture of that information And then really in the middle is where the science actually happens, that it's some it's some balance of those two and that maybe a society needs all of those forms in order to itself sort of present a sufficiently Goldilocks response. Anyway, I don't know. We're getting so, so deep. I mean, that's that's
0: interesting. That's like. Yeah, to to get it, to bring it like a little bit more into a practical realm, like I've noticed that those different, that half pipe, like people fall into all sorts of, they, they fall on either end, like they're either hanging from, they've fallen and they're like hanging from one side or the other, the half pipe, or, and some people are just like lying down in the middle. <laughs> and I think most scientists also sort of fall into those spaces. Um, And what I think is interesting about, like, the sort of the architecture of contemporary science, like, you know, academia, increasingly, you know, like corporate research science, of which I place, you know, like Google and everybody who's working there. And, um, you know, I think it's forcing people, it's forcing people towards either end, like there isn't really a space for the kind of science that is accepting of like this flux or that is constantly in flux, it's just, like, it's not allowed. And so I think when I talk about, like, a shift or, like, a different way of conducting science, partially I wonder, like, how can we push things back into a space where that flux is, you know, ever-present and acceptable, if that makes sense. Yeah. What What I find really interesting is that, I mean, this is just, like, a personal theory of mine, but I wonder there's a certain masculine element to a lot of questions that are asked of the world. And um, I think as science becomes a, a space where many different types of people who are who don't identify in that sort of, who, who culturally don't sort of come from that, like hyper masculine space are allowed to start conducting investigative investigative paths of their own i think that science will actually shift and i think that's just like a, that's just statistics like if you start to allow a different sort of neuroecology to like start asking those questions you create a new ecological space for science to kind of grow within and i mean just totally anecdotally like i i can and totally qualitatively i can kind of see that amongst young young scientists who don't sort of fall into you Know the the typical demographic of, of uh, scientists, at least from like you know, I don't know, the 1950s kind of like idea of the guy in the white coat who's sort of they're doing something alone and asking a singular question that only he can ask and understand and sort of contemplate the answer to, which I don't think is is just not possible anymore. And it's and things are shifting, and increasingly, the questions aren't even being asked by us anymore, or answered by us anymore, they're being answered by like proxies of ourselves that we create with data sets that are increasingly complex um and so i think like that's a whole other question which i i think is amazing that we create an increasingly complex like replication of reality that we feed into um, machines that then sort of give us more and more approximately correct answers which are just like increasingly more complex so we're we're approaching some sort of like memento mori for reality in a way Uh, by like making this like Borgesian like sort of library of realities and sort of like feeding it into um so i mean i just want to make those you know multiplicative realities that we're studying uh weirder and stranger and more diverse and complex because that's the only way that we can sort of pull out different types of answers and like set loose everybody on those questions to a certain extent you know to to ask them because that's the only way we can not have homogeneity like across the board right um which is like i think nobody wants that
1: well i mean nobody <clears throat> nobody who is like properly tuned to the survival demands of our civilization wants that you know because we all know that the like monocultural approach doesn't work it's a very sort of 20th century pipe dream not a half pipe dream you said something that yeah I, I was delighted that you brought up borges and this notion of like the one one scale map that just lays over the territory and doesn't help us at all because it's the same size as the thing it, it's like useless as a map right and i've been thinking a lot about that in terms of how much knowledge each person can hold. I had Hunter Motz on the show, and Hunter's somebody who thinks a lot about this, this, uh, the knowledge crisis that we're going through when, you know, we're, not only are we at a point where the, you know, the common people, to use a totally abhorrent term, non-scientists have a trouble understanding the, the sort of specific lingo, but even the experts are having difficulty keeping up with the literature in their own field. It's not just a system level thing. It's like there's only so much information that fits in one person's brain. And like you were saying, you know, so many of the questions that we have are questions that require, you know, it requires multiple perspectives simply to even like frame the question right. And then we're getting the machines involved. And like we're at I, I, I saw a presentation here where they were saying, you know, the more Like the the, the weird thing, I'm really curious to know what you think about machine learning in terms of the practice of science because the brain science that's being done now in terms of this presentation I saw was on training machine learning algorithms to make sense of the raw data from medical imaging scanners. So like uh, MRI or, or PET scanners, and they feed this, it doesn't look like the image that we ultimately see. It's rendered in this, what they call a k space. And it just looks like this kind of abstract plot. It looks like a, like a blurry star or something. And then they train the machines to correlate everything and generate a human readable image of the scanned anatomy. And the better that that system does, the less we know how it does it like the better the machine learning algorithms get, the more mysterious and incomprehensible what's going on inside them is to human beings because we're just setting evolution on these systems and letting them sort it out. It's not like we designed it to act this way. And so they're sending additional machine learning algorithms in to try and understand what's going on inside of those machine and learning algorithms. And you can see where this story is headed. Like it's an endless regression of ineffable black box insanity. We're at that Although, point.
0: Yeah, go ahead. I feel, I mean, I feel that like the black box discussion is a little bit of a distraction from the subjective human actor a little bit. Like we're, we're, everybody is kind of like fixated on it. And I find it interesting too, because of the idea that there's a sort of, like unknown godlike entity which is like you know figuring things out that um we find inexplicable and it is ineffable in some ways i feel like that's a it's like a mythological construct that in reality is like not really rooted it it doesn't it allows us to sort of step away from this thing that we've built and say like i don't have i have like very little responsibility which i don't think is like that is not really tethered to the reality of how a lot of machine learning works because we have so much agency in creating these machines and I actually um i think i told you about this i just uh, came out of doing this really interesting kind of three work three-week program at the school for poetic computation oh, yeah. which is this really awesome really fantastic kind of workshop where these type we we talk about these questions like constantly for hours and hours with, with people who are machine learning specialists, who are programmers and coders in, in sort of artistic spaces, scientific spaces, engineering spaces, you know, people who are working at Google who are doing their own artistic practice. And and a lot of what I came away from those discussions about machine learning, or what I took away from that, was that actually um, we we've created this set of mythologies. We Uh, especially the creators of a lot of machine learning kind of algorithms or who are doing research in this space, because it is frightening what we're doing, but we don't, we don't want to take responsibility. Like we want to step away. And I think we have a responsibility too. And so like, although those questions are interesting, like, you know, what is happening behind this black box? The reality is like the black box is not as big a problem as us as a black box. Why are we doing this? like why are we making these models like why you know in some cases like okay we want to be able to you know diagnose lung cancer at a much earlier stage than it you know a human eye could ever do and with a high degree of accuracy that's that's great but like what are the repercussions of making this type of um machine learning sort of system uh visual machine learning system like we can't answer those questions and to me that's more frightening than the question of like what's going on behind the scenes because what's going on behind the scenes is something that's like probably uh, similar or parallel or um related in some way to its maker and what's happening in our heads but we can't if we can't even answer the question about our own subjective sort of reasons for creating these systems i think like that's that's the sort of deeply frightening piece of it um because if we want to make something that's sort of out of control like we'll do it and we're pretty good at it's not like history has sort of demonstrated that we don't know how to do that. Right. (laughs) We know how to make lots of different types of technologies that are sort of just beyond the grasp of many people's understanding to the extent that they then, you know, fall into the wrong hands or used in a way that is detrimental to like huge numbers of people that kills huge numbers of people, you know? So I think, I think over the past years, I've developed like pretty strong feelings about, the sort of ethics and, and responsibility the the sort of ethics of subjectivity in science and research. And like, I think that my, my mission, even with massive science is to try to like wrench the conversation from like that space of, wow, like what's happening? Like, isn't that crazy? Is everything just going to like rapidly like drive towards the singularity and then we're all dead to like, Hey, we actually have control like right now of what's going to happen. Like, why don't, why don't we start sort of asking ourselves why we're doing certain things and why we're developing certain technologies or certain, we're developing capacities. Like, why are we doing that? Why, why do we want to, why do we want to create a one-to-one map of our own cognitive function? Like, why are we fixated on that? I mean, I have all sorts of theories as to why that's the case, but I I, I think that's, (laughs) um, I mean, I think we're like luridly and narcissistically curious about reproduction and we this is we've we've figured out some like sort of sick way of of building of like creating and birthing these like building blocks of cognition that we are we're fascinated by in the same way that we're like all fascinated by babies and the the act of giving birth and sort of and sex like i think that there's there's some there's some axis uh, creation axis that's that's happening there that I think that's that's sort of one theory that I have and another is like there's I think there's a death drive <laughs> mm. that uh humans have um and in particular you know like we are the tools that we create I don't think there's such a thing as humans without tools it's there's no like sort of um human that exists like just with hands and feet and like no objects to explore the world like our brains evolved in concert with the tools that we we created and with the material culture that we that we manifested around us um so yeah i I think that we we have a compulsion at times i don't know if this is like an evolutionary like sort of dead end to create increasingly dangerous tools that will allow us to investigate the world in ways that like have the potential like this high risk tool manufacturing is (laughs) kind of I don't know what that is, but I mean, it's it's yeah. I don't know why. I mean, humans are we're we're fascinating and we're like really complicated. but We're also like a bit sick, you know. Do, um,
1: is this the I, kind of is this the kind of question that you invite scientists to ask when you're training them to be narrative storytellers for your your platform here? I'm like I'm curious. I mean, that's a yes or no yeah, thing, think... but then, like, the B is, like, I'm curious what it actually looks like, what the what that process is for, like, onboarding uh, scientific researchers and making them better storytellers. Because I feel like that, that kind of question is the right way to take it, or at least a right way. The kind of question of, like, which kind of question? Well, just, like, ethical self-inquiry or, like, self-inquiry yeah. in general. Like, you know, I, I I feel like the ability to weave a yarn is probably hypothesis is directly correlated to one's own ability to investigate their own mind.
0: Yeah I so we do encourage that like we and, and it, there's a lot of friction and I sort of tell a lot of the scientists that come on board with us and, and have ideas about stories that they want to tell, which frequently hew pretty closely to like just the science that's being done in the lab and like the paper that was produced and like what does it mean? I try to like, and and our editors try and our whole team tries in the process that we use to like wrench them away from that. And it's a little bit, it's like a, it's a growth process. And in that growth process, there's friction and there's like pain because for many researchers, like they've spent, you know, four years, 10 years, whatever, 20 years being trained in this sort of objective storytelling, um, method and, uh, it hurts them to know that actually that's not the most effective way of building like trust with people, which is essentially what storytelling is. It's like, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to expose a sort of vulnerable piece of myself as a storyteller or of a character in the story, but I'm going to allow you in there and trust that you're not going to kill me in that process or, or sort of take this information and do something like terrible with it. And that, that whole that whole instinct, which I think we all naturally have, like, you know, to, to tell a story that engages a person and builds trust has been like beaten out of a lot of scientists, because it's totally unacceptable. You will never have a paper published, you just like you will not even get through grad school. So like the basic training sort of removes that. And we're just trying to, to, in a very small way, provide a pathway for those scientists to like, start asking those questions. Like, why do, why do I have this set of beliefs? Oh, maybe it's because the PI that I've been working with for four years is like, you know, very, um, very dedicated to this one framework for understanding the research that we're doing. Most of them already understand that. I think what we try to do is get them to understand that it's not just like your, your PI and, you know, the five other PIs and and their sort of uh, interpretation of the research you're doing. It's also like my interpretation as a non, you know, researcher who's, who's into science. And your moms and like, you know, a bunch of people who live in Wisconsin who are, you know, farmers or who work in a factory or who are teachers or who, you know, are religious people. And that is very hard because it requires, it really requires, I think, the the process by which most of our scientists kind of get to that space of becoming really good storytellers requires like a bit of personal growth and sort of pain on their end. And so I have to, I have to warn a lot of them before they come into the process that like, it's not necessarily going to be easy, but we try, what we try to do at massive science is to create this sort of like soft intermediary between the pain and vulnerability of subject of the subjective self and storytelling in that way where you're like, look, yeah, I'm a scientist and I, and I work for a land grant university. We have a very particular viewpoint on, you know, agricultural science. Um, Or, you know, I'm from the global south, like I have a very different idea about um, genetic engineering and its possible impact on like large populations of people or, you know, those types of questions. Those are also, you know, not surprisingly, the most popular stories that we ever publish, because they expose the sort of subjectivity of science, They, they kind of expose that, the threads of that fabric that is like, shimmery and beautiful and like looks like a reality when we when we look at it from the outside but if you start to sort of like tear it apart you can see that it's a construct and you can see the reality behind it is a sort of like big mess which is what a lot of science is um, with a lot of people who are like really trying very hard to like create something you know that's within there And, and people love that it's like it's a uh, it's endearing to know that people are working so hard and they care so much about something that they're they're really willing to sacrifice a lot personally and professionally and then also sacrifice the self like I mean I think that's that's the sort of core of, of what we're trying to do which is very difficult it's like this crystal this like beautiful crystal it's very fragile where we're like look scientists are like very sensitive people they' they've devoted their lives to a certain extent to sort of like investigating some question uh, of varying degrees of complexity and like if we expose too much of that to you it will like break you know because they they're vulnerable and sensitive but at the same t- so we have to mediate it and i think for the most part it works and i think we're we're constantly trying to figure out like what are better ways of like bringing up that friction without without destroying our audience's trust and our ability to like tell a, a truthful story or one that hues as closely to the truth as possible but also a subjective one that is like interesting and engaging. And this, the same questions apply for our scientists who are writing for us. But I don't know. I, I also, there's like some weird sea change that's happening and this is kind of like an aside, but I think younger people, younger scientists that we work with are earlier at, at an earlier stage of their career are approaching these kinds of questions like in a different way, which, like there are more and i think maybe this is like one of the great boons of social media and the way in which like younger people engage with the internet and with the subjective self like they have many subjective selves because they have like many different um faces they're like that multi-headed like um i forget what that
1: message Giannis. is
0: yes yeah yeah it's yannis but it's also the one with the four faces you know it's like oh, every
1: different face the one from chapel of sacred mirrors that yeah is yeah always painting. yeah yeah
0: Yeah, but they're used to doing that, and so there's a sort of, like, flexibility and, like, really interesting plasticity around, like, creating those different subjective, like, narratives, and there's, like, an ease at which people, like, move between those subjectivities, or perceived subjectivities, or subjective selves, and so I think, like, yeah, things I mean, obviously things, we have no control over the way in which people... (laughs) Are changing, but I there is like something that's happening there that I think is fascinating. Like younger, younger scientists just have a different way of thinking about the science that they do in like their own space, their own agency in that space. So, anyway, sorry, that was a very there is a very long-winded like rambling answer to a question that I can't even
1: remember anymore. Olay, that's what we're all about here. (laughs) I you know, first of all, I think that your your point on this being sort of a, a product or consequence of social media is really astute because i remember a few years ago reading this essay by nathan jurgensen who went on to be the uh social media scholar uh, like the media theorist or whatever they he whatever they called him at at snapchat and it was him and this guy pj ray writing an essay called the fan dance about exactly what you're talking about the performance of sort of multiple selves online and You know, Jurgensen's been an interesting dude in theoretically in a couple ways. One is he rejects the idea of a digital dualism that our lives online are somehow like ontologically distinct, that it's like a different class of reality from everything else. And in that sense, he's counter critiqued people who have a problem with the way that young, young people are constantly taking pictures and sharing their experiences. Because he says like this isn't, they're not, not being present with their friends. They're being present with their friends. You just don't see them because their friends are somewhere else. You know, that this, in some way, this is exactly the same kind of cultural activity that's always been going on. But then he says on top of that, because of the way that the affordances of these new media create an environment in which each of us is moving through different social spaces, sometimes overlapping, sometimes non-overlapping, that it's not that there really is like the end of privacy, and like so even in these things that we've come to think of as sort of these panopticon surveillance deals, younger savvier people than myself are hacking through these spaces in ways where what we're doing un unintentionally unconsciously they're doing intentionally
0: yeah, I mean one of the other like one of the words that I think um maybe connects like this conversation about social media and also our conversations about machine learning and also what we're doing at Massive is, is, uh, and also a lot of what we talked about at the School for Poetic Computation, which has really stuck with me, is this idea of care. And like, um, what does it mean to sort of create a system where care is integrated into that system, care for both other people, for society, for a community? Um, Because, and I think the reality is like that is actually something that most people strive for you know they're striving for that regardless of the systems that have been put in place to sort of strip that from them which is why like even though we have this sort of you know um centuries old practice of science that sort of like strips away the idea that a scientist actually cares about their work and is invested in it and has a sort of subjective experience of themselves as an actor like They're still coming to us because they want to sort of relearn how to how to do that in a way that allows them, because they care about people, they care about the science, they care, and and they realize that expressing that care is important to sort of build bridges between people. And I think, you know, in the same way, like young people, really, when it comes down to it, they care about, and everybody cares about connecting with other people, like loneliness is is a sort of like opposite of care in some, in some universe, right? Like, and, and people are driving, they, they will constantly drive away from loneliness, which is like a, it's an it's an evolutionary drive. I think I'm not one to generally use like sort of evolutionary explanations <laughs> for behavior, but Busted. I do think, yeah, I know. That's like, that's the one time I'll ever do that. Um, Bad
1: science narrativization.
0: I... <laughs> I think, but I do think that you know most most people need uh they need to feel cared for and they need to feel and that they can express care, and I think um, and I think like it's it's really it's a sort of like fine thread that connects a lot of different a lot of these different pieces and especially like when we're talking about machine learning like if we can't answer the questions as to like why we care about creating these systems or whether or not we're creating a system. Which has inbuilt in it um, care for you know other systems or other people like then we're really in a bad place. Um, but I have I have like infinite hope that that people will always return to that. To, we'll always return to care.
1: Hmm. that's a beautiful thing. I feel like not to hammer this home exactly, but I do. I feel like the question of the black box and the question of care are really intimately related to each other because like, ultimately, you know, when you talk about trust and the way that being able to tell a story is a way that we build, that we establish trust and that learning from scientists why and how they conducted their research is like a shore or a hedge against this awful trend that we're seeing across pretty much every domain of human activity, that society has scaled to the point where we're no longer capable of interacting with people directly enough that we can trust them. If science ends up being sort of like backsliding into us just standing around machines and asking them questions, they'll show us the work and we can't understand it. Then the scientists, first of all, the scientists lose their prestige as people who are capable of thinking this through, but that's, I mean, whatever. I, but like, more importantly, we lose a relationship with the humanity of our own knowledge. My My concern here is not so much that it's like an existential risk. It may end up that our incomprehensibly sophisticated technologies are just like totally awesome, you know, and that life is better, but that we never figure out how or, or why and that we lose something really valuable like we we like we lose um i mean maybe i'm totally worrying about the wrong thing here you know because we we were just fine and in, in like the pre-modern world this didn't bother us that life was a mystery you know but the thing was that we hadn't we hadn't created it ourselves <laughs> you know in yeah way,
0: we were, we weren't creating that mysterious
1: yeah yeah, like we want to know, like that. there's something about like the whether it's machine assisted or not, there's something about reaching a point where the questions we're asking or the answers we're getting are beyond our ability to explain to one another is.
0: Well, I mean, sorry, I'm going to interrupt you yeah, because I, I, think, I think the control, right, or the illusion of control, like this, this idea that we're, we're creating all of these technologies, we like understand them. 120 percent, and we will we will be able to sort of construct this giant sort of in, you know industrial machinery that you know can recreate realities that can investigate our, our lived reality and that we understand every piece of it is a sort of is like antithetical to the idea of care and 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 humanity right like we to care is to act ethically to be ethical and control doesn't even exist in that same universe, and I think a lot of and like control is sort of understanding everything, right, and being able to like move apart to to change a variable and to sort of know exactly what to have this sort of like deterministic machinery, and so maybe maybe like transcendence happens when we finally just start creating technology that it, that it replicates reality in as much as like we don't understand it, um and and we sort of let go of that. I mean, I mean increasingly maybe it's just because I. You know, I go to therapy and I know a lot of people who go to therapy. I mean, they live in New York City, but I, I live in New York City, so that's kind of inevitable. But I do think there's something to be said for like relinquishing control or like the desire to attain more and more control and what that brings us in not just like a, a sort of emotional sense, like joy or happiness, but also what it releases us from and what, it, what kinds of questions we can start asking when we stop trying to sort of control our environment or create machines that control the environment or create a system that we can control, which like is our environment.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you and I see to pretty eye to eye on this particular issue. I think our first conversation, we were talking about Kevin Kelly's graph of the exponential expansion of ignorance you know, that like every question answered raises multiple new questions. So we're kind of, you know, the the whole notion that, that science is leading us towards some sort of perfect knowing is totally wrong, like 1000% wrong. But like, okay, so I was just reading last night, uh, William Irwin Thompson, Passages About Earth. And Bill Thompson's this cultural historian, I've had him on the show, amazing mind. You know, he was personal friends with a lot of the people who pioneered kind of the sciences of complex adaptive systems. Paolo Soleri, Greg Bateson, Lynn Margulis, Stuart Brand were all members of his Lindisfarne Association. And so, you know, he's writing back in the 70s, right at the beginning of that organization, about how there's two kinds of science. He's like, the real cultural division, and this is really like the last sort of like thing I want to drop in your mind pond here and see where it lands and what jumps out, he's like the real cultural division is not between the sciences and the humanities. It's like you just said, it's like every scientist is a person with a self and a story and musical tastes and favorite books. And they live in a culture and, and just because they don't necessarily communicate in that way, like their subjective experience, their cultural experience is very much not so much bound, you know, divided between scientific and humanities ways of seeing things he's like the real the real division is between the people in the sciences or the humanities that see things in the archimedean way engineering control domination of nature the extension of will and the people who see things in the pythagorean way the mystic scientists you know and he he points to like bf skinner and behaviorism on the archimedean side and he points to people like Carl Sagan who are in it for the wonder on this sort of the mystic scientist side and you know Einstein but the point is that that it's like there's these two profoundly different ways of knowing in the sciences and um, I don't know do you think that really moving through an age where one is taking over from the other or do you think that these are sort of like held in stable population and that that we're at a point where institutional science driven by massive companies like Google, uh, which by the way, I gotta say, I think it's kind of hilarious that the name of your company is Massive Science, even though it's like this miniature startup and it's very human scale and and friendly and it has a face. But I mean, it seems as though as things become more and more complex and extreme that these two different ways of knowing are actually gonna sort of be formalized in society in like massive institutional collaborations and then like these empowered garage researchers that have their own like DIY biopunk thing going on and that I don't know I I don't know where we're going with this except that maybe there's like a speciation event at the level of like the way that we actually investigate the universe and that we're in the middle of it or do you witness this
0: I I mean I think you brought up an interesting fact which is that like or well, okay. So, just to to backtrack, you were talking about uh, B.F. Skinner, and did we did we talk about I don't know if you can okay. edit this out. Did we talk? We didn't talk about Gertrude Stein and B.F. Skinner, did we?
1: I don't believe we did. No.
0: Okay. So, there's this really amazing researcher, um, programmer, artist named Allison Parrish, and uh, she teaches at ITP in New York, I believe. But I heard a, a one of the lectures that she gave was about the uh, kind of history of like the idea of automatic writing and automatic painting which was um, a kind of framework that was used at the beginning of the 20th century at the end of the the end of the nineteenth century this idea that somehow like you could um, you could really access the the ego the sort of mystic element of the self through the automatism so like allow it like taking away the the subjective self and allowing the you know something else to come through, and of course there's like a history of like esoteric kind of religious, spiritual people and their practice around like automatic writing and painting. And in fact, at the Guggenheim in New York City right now, there's a amazing exhibit of uh, this woman Hilma, Clint, who is a was a Swedish painter who who is a sort of automatic painter and sort of made these really beautiful uh, paintings that sort of brought together visualizations of science and um, and physics that were happening in the beginning of like 1904, um, and sort of merging them with these like mystical experiences that she was having. But one of the things I didn't realize and that Alison Parrish was talking about was that there was a connection that w- is often not spoken about, but between psychology and sort of like early neuroscience, and the idea of automatism. Um, and Gertrude Stein like developed her whole theory of experimental uh, experimental writing, which was like untethered from a narrative and from the subjective self through work that she was actually doing with BF Skinner, which is like kind of blew my mind. And I didn't understand like that. And actually right here, I have one of this book that I bought because I was so excited uh, about like understanding the, the correlation between The idea of creating like an untethered, subjective written narrative form and early psychological experiments that a lot of French psychiatrists and psychologists were doing. It's called Gertrude Stein and the Correlations of Writing and Science by this guy Stephen Meyer. So, what I to sort of answer your question, like I think that a lot of it has to do with who gets to tell the stories of what was actually happening at the time. Like our Mm. our conception of like whether or not people were. Troubled by what was known and what was unknown, you know, at certain times throughout history is like totally defined by the, the sort of written and cultural record that's left behind. And so like one of the things that I mean, this sounds like it's super grandiose, but like what I'm trying to do is say like, okay, well, we have this like insane record of scientific research and like just a tiny drop of the context around it and what if we started to record alongside with all of that science the sort of actual subjective context of what was happening almost like a sort of archaeological record for the future of like because that data is actually important the data of that that sits around the, the scientific research like we need that we need those stories so that we can understand things in the future when we look back i think you know for some time i did a little bit of archaeological work and um i w- you know i was struck by like being out in the field and like you know stumbling upon some stone and realizing like there was an individual that made this hand axe and they did it for a reason they did it here for a reason they did it at a certain time for a reason like i'm discovering this you know 200,000 years later w- what how the hell am I supposed to understand anything about this I have to piece it together in the most arcane fashion and tell some story about what I think happened that's what's going to happen with the like horrible record that we're leaving behind of the research that we're doing now and it's not like we we don't have the capacity to do that I think it's just like a it's it's almost like hubris that we're we're not collecting that information and sort of like packaging it with care to send off like a you know, like a little emissary into the future. Like, this is why we did this science. Here's what here's what we could figure out with our really rudimentary tools that we have right now. Maybe if we give you all the context, you can like figure out some more things um, when you look back on this.
1: Mm. You know, that's funny. You, you kind of preempted the, the way, the question I ask that I usually end this show with, which is if you were to act under the assumption that the future is watching, Or listening um, not just to this episode but you know to your life and there's there's like that that sort of I've heard a lot of people raise this this notion that you know maybe one day you know every historian in training is assigned to like a social media profile from the early 21st century and like they you know attempt to reconstruct this person's life and figure out their contributions to history so if we are you know the data of this, presumably very caring, future investigation, um, what would you hope to ask? What would you hope to say, you, Nadia?
0: Um, I I hope that I hope that people in the future, look back on you, you're talking about me. or are you talking about like all of science? Like, what do I hope they look back on us? Like humans at this point in time in 2019,
1: however you want to slice it.
0: <laughs> so I think, I hope that, you know, the, the science technology and society researchers of like 3050, wherever they are um, and the historians and sort of, future archaeologists who are coming and future scientists who are sort of looking back on this time and what we're doing I really hope that they they feel that that there was a diversity of opinion you know that there was a diversity of of thought that there was a sort of like rich ecological neurologically sort of like diverse approach to understanding the world and sort of investigating it and my fear is that just as it's always been that that diversity gets kind of like smoothed over and wiped clean by, by just the passage of time, but also by the stranglehold that people have had on, you know, narratives, narratives of the past. And so I think, yeah. And and I I hope that there is a sort of shift where like this proliferation, this like insane proliferation of opinion and context and subjectivity that we put on the internet every day, and that we have been for um, decades, and that you know we put out into the world as printed matter and visual matter. And I hope that that survives um, in some form, so that people can can, or not I maybe mean, they're not people, but so that beings can kind of look back and sort of understand that we were really trying, like that we really did care, and that for humans um, in 2019, like care looked like a diversity of opinion and a diversity of thought and a diversity of, of, you know, ways of thinking. And that's certainly like, that's the only thing that like keeps me going is sort of wanting to, um, you know, in the face of like a lot of terrible things that could happen or might happen or whatever, is that actually that is the essence of who we are right now. And that I see as like a, as a deeply beautiful thing. And I hope that, um, I hope that can be seen and sort of like witnessed by, by people in the future who who look back on this time and not just sort of not just seeing the, a a predominant narrative, which is a really destructive one. I think, um, yeah, I think that like undergirds a lot of what I'm trying to do, um, with massive, but just like in my life as a, as a person, as an ethical person who cares or who, who wants to perceive themselves as an ethical person. who cares. So,
1: So would you, would you, uh, sort of analogize this as the future is a foreign country that I hope isn't just learning about me from the news
0: (laughs) yeah or that I hope the news can be written but I hope there's enough news is that um you know like that that it doesn't seem so clear-cut I hope it's more complicated than it seems you know
1: yeah yeah, I hope that we, we we never make a map that we're satisfied actually fulfills the Borgesian uh, one-to-one correlation. I don't even think it's possible. So I think you're in luck, <laughs> so, Nadia. It's been so fun as it, as it always is to talk to you. I hope that I can lure you back onto the show for like a group discussion sometime. Where where can where can people find you? MassiveSci.com. Yeah, give us the whole rundown. Yeah, so
0: if you want to um, read more science translated by scientists, um, you can go to MassiveSci.com, and you can find us on all the different uh, multitudinous platforms out there if you if you just Google MassiveSci. Um, and then you can find me. I I exist in a lot of different forms, but uh, if you want to talk to me, you can send me an email at Nadia at MassiveSci.com. That's probably the most... That's the most caring way to reach out to me. I think probably on other platforms, it's uh, it's it's too over mediated, but um, yeah, I'm always happy to chat about all sorts of different things. And I really appreciate you bringing me on. This has been really lovely. I'm always happy to, to ba- debate and talk and um, kind of go off on these weird paths.
1: Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Future Fossils is a part of the MindPod Network, along with other great shows, such as Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, It's All Happening, Synchronicity, Rainbow Brain Skull, and many others. Trip on over to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And if you'd like to support this show directly, or would just like to know more about what I am doing in numerous other media, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the bizarre experience of duration as we move through space-time or whatever this is into the moment in which you're listening to the next episode.